You found us through fly fishing. You'll stay for our passion and the community. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Podcast. Yeah, but he doesn't get it. How come fly fishermen don't get it? You only haul with the short power snap. Look for where people walk and the insides of bends and hunt those. The roof blew off and the interior walls got sucked out and the trees are just coming up. And I mean, he's clearly not going to clear the trees. It is not a fly fishing story. It's a story about me trying to understand my brother through fly fishing. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. We've been waiting for you. Follow our guests, follow us on Instagram, and share this episode and the love if you enjoy this podcast. And we are live in three, two, one. How are you guys doing? We are doing just great. Thank you. Yeah, doing doing excellent. Looking back at another awesome season of fishing. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm excited to talk to you guys about this because we're kind of coming into uh, ending the, the, the season, getting ready to think about wintertime. And I want to hear how, how it went for you. Uh, you know, Northern Rockies Adventures is this place. I've watched some videos. I haven't been up there yet, but I hope to. But it's this remote wilderness uh, lodge. Uh, you guys have these float planes, which are amazing and huge. Uh, I want to dig into all that. I want to, before we get into all the fishing, you know, Daniel and everything there, I want to hear from your dad, maybe the story, because I am i don't even know, but I'm guessing he founded this lodge or was a big part of getting it started. So Ors, do you want to give us a, start us off how, how you got into this lodge? I would love to, yes. My wife and I, Marianne, we are originally from Switzerland, as you probably can tell from my accent. <laughs> and I have the flying bug. And we came to Canada in 1979 and started the air service in 1981 in Fort Liard in the Northwest Territories in Northern Canada, just about 100 miles to the northeast of where we live now on the Alaska Highway in Manchur Lake Provincial Park. And over the years, uh, being a bush pilot flying a uh, the natives, the trappers, the hunters, the fishermen to their favorite lakes and streams in the, in the area. I got to know all the secrets of fishing within a 200 mile radius of Mancho Lake. It's an amazing area. The area drains, no, drains north into the Arctic Ocean, unlike the rest of BC, which drains into the Pacific. That's also why we have a completely different fish population. We have all native wild fish up here from rainbow trouts to walleyes to arctic railings to bull trout northern pike and lake trout it's just a great variety of species wow that's amazing so so basically you yeah you were a bush pilot going and at some point you said hey i know this water so well i'm going to create a lot did you actually build the entire lodge or did you buy that or how'd that work we had the opportunity to purchase a small lodge on the Alaska Highway, which uh, was serving the traffic uh, traveling up to Alaska and uh, the Yukon. And then we expanded that and built a new building. Well, it's not new anymore. It's uh, 25 years ago. And we managed to develop it to one of the major uh, stopping points of travelers uh, driving up to Alaska. But it also serves an, as an excellent jumping off point to get into the backcountry, which is only accessible by flow plane. We have to remember the Alaska Highway is the only road up there, which basically rises through a unspoiled wilderness, the unspoiled wilderness of the northern Rocky Mountains. 
And as soon as you want to get off that road, there's no surface transportation really available. You do need the flow planes to access those streams and the mountain lakes. Gotcha. And what was the lake, uh, or as you, you mentioned the name of the lake, maybe describe, you guys can describe, is there one big lake? Is there a bunch of lakes up there? What's that look like? Well, Northern BC, the Northern Rocky Mountains, they have lots and lots of uh, small mountain lakes and streams. Now, Mancho Lake itself, where we are located, is a seven-mile-long lake. It's very deep. It's 400 feet. It's one of the biggest natural lakes of the Northern Rockies. It has uh, various feeder streams, a major outlet. It's excellent for grayling fishing, uh, bull trout, and Rocky Mountain whitefish. But it's our base to fly into the backcountry to those smaller mountain lakes, which give us access to the streams where the fly fishermen can fish the the untouched waters of northern BC. And the easiest way to get up here is really by uh, by flying with our packages out of Vancouver. We operate our own King Air 300 to take people up conveniently to northern BC from Vancouver. Yeah, I, I think, you know, it's what it, what it's kind of about is, you know, when you're traveling this far and you want to see, you know, remote fishing, people just want to get right off the road, right? Once you're on a on a highway roadside access, all of those lakes, you know, they've they've been fished for 40, 50 years, and it's it's nothing like in the lower 48. Uh, you know, they're they're more prolific fisheries than that off the highway. But the the true gem of the Rockies is where no one else has access to, and yeah. you can only get there with a float plane. Gotcha. And, and what? How do you spell that name? What, the lake, the Man- Manchur. How do you spell that? Yeah, Mancho, uh, spelled M-U-N-C-H-O, and it's uh, it's actually a native word, uh, First Nations. Uh, it means, uh, I think, big or deep in the Casca language. It is a massive lake. It's 350 to 370 feet deep in some spots. It's it's pretty pretty fascinating. I, I grew up on the shores of that lake, and you know it never ceases to surprise me. And what is the um, the river that flows into it comes out of that that big lake? Yeah, well, I mean that's that's a fitting name for a river going into it. Uh, it's the Trout River. Oh, it's the Trout River. Nice, nice. Yeah. So there you go. What's what's in the Trout River? Funny enough, though, mainly grayling. The fishery, the fish that we see the most of up there everywhere is pretty much the Arctic grayling, which is kind of funny. It's it's an exotic everywhere else. It's under pressure. And I was talking to some biologists about it, and they basically summed it up really nicely for me. The first fish to disappear when a system is under pressure is the grayling. They're an indicator species. They thrive on uh, crystal clear waters. They need pristine habitat, and we have that in abundance. That's right. Wow, this is this is so cool. Yeah, and you guys are literally right at the base. I mean, you're right in the Rockies. You're in the northern Rockies. Like, if you look behind you, well, in any way, you got giant mountains around you. Is that the case at the lodge? There's no more Rockies after us. We're the we're the tip of the iceberg. We're the heart of the Rockies. I like to call it. From there, the the Rockies stretch all the way down to New Mexico. Yeah, to New Mexico. Wow, this is this is awesome. So uh, I've been up in BC. It's one of my favorite places. Um, I will definitely go there more and more. And I was just uh, back to the Skeena this year. And so I know you're close by. I don't know how close you are, but give us a little rundown for people that don't know BC. Um, Like if we just want to Google something or find you, how would you describe it? You know, we're the top northeastern corner of BC. So we're right below the Yukon border. Um, Our fishery is totally different because of that. We have you know, the Rockies, we have the Cassier Mountains that feed into the Skeena, of course. 
But then we also have the interior plateau that is kind of like Alberta fishery. That's why we have the walleye fishing. So we're we're right at the top of the province, and our fishing area is roughly ten percent of BC. It's that's some forty thousand odd square miles at least. It's, wow, it's pretty pretty massive. Now you're saying out of all of British Columbia, your area that you cover is ten percent of it. Ten percent of it, yeah. It's it's wow. huge, and you know like. The majority of that is lakes, but the lakes all feed into rivers and streams. So you can multiply that by by a good factor of three for the fisheries. And, you know, as, as everyone knows, how many pools you have along a river, or a, you know, a nice little run here and there, man, we, we've got countless, you know, little fishing holes all over. And yeah, it, that's why we have that variety, right? It's just, we can really dial it in. Right. That's why you have pretty much everything up there. Uh, all these species because it's it's pretty diverse right i mean you don't have the one thing you don't have is the salmon right that's kind of the one exactly. thing exactly yeah it's, you know that's something you think about people like oh man but i wish i could just catch a salmon on this trip i'm like well you know you can do a lot of salmon fishing in bc but what's nice about this with the salmon not in, a, in our system i find it's a little bit of a blessing uh, especially for the fly fishermen if you want to use those traditional nymphing patterns those dry flies and not swing eggs all day Go somewhere where the sar- salmon ain't. It's just, it's just kind of the the nature of it. When there's salmon in the system, and there, you know, everything kind of revolves around them. You have that up in Alaska too. So we use a lot of dry flies. Our go-to, like our biggest hatch, is probably a caddis hatch, kind of in end of July into early August. And man, you do you can fish caddis all the way up until I was I was out on a spot. I was scouting out until October, like. It, it was crazy. And yeah, I mean, the mayflies do really well as well too, but I think that the caddis might just be a touch hardier or something in our region. And just the mayfly hatch is short, it's intense, but the caddis is prolonged and it's always a really good pattern. Right. Caddis, exactly. And do you guys have, uh, well, we talked a little species, but maybe talk about that a little bit. Uh, do the rundown and, uh, but what yeah. are the, yeah. Yeah, no, we, we call them the the fishing grand slam of the Canadian Rockies and that, you know, six trophy species, freshwater only, that's going to be the lake trout, the bull trout, the, um, of course the rainbow trout. And then, you know, the grayling, the Arctic grayling in there, the pike, the walleye, like there's a lot to cover, but it's, it's so awesome because with this massive fishing area, we can really, you know, they all have seasons and with the elevation in the season, we can really hone in on, on, you know, the perfect fishing spot. Yep. And, and people that are coming up there, they're kind of choosing, picking and choosing like, Hey, which species are in, but there is a chance to get a number of them on the same trip, right? Oh yeah. You can, you can catch, you know, you can catch yourself a grand slam pretty easily. Like you'll go to a spot and you can, you can catch, you know, three species of trout, get an IGFA record. Like, you know, you can join a grand slam club on a trip like this officially. It's, it's pretty cool. And yeah, there, you have a lot of multi-species days. You know, some of the minor species I don't talk about, uh, you know, the Rocky Mountain whitefish, we catch those all the time too. You just don't really guide as much for them, but they're there. We have the burbot. That's uh, for fly fishermen. Yeah, that's, that'd be a chore to get into one of those. They're, they're deep and tricky. And, uh, you know, I, I did mention I'm, I'm chasing a little bit of an Incano up there, but they're, they're, they're migratory in our area. So it's, it's not really something, you know, we really guide with unless unless i i crack the code really good okay and now what is this ink i'm not familiar with the ink now what is this it's a it's a species that really exists kind of in the in the in the higher arctic watersheds you see it a bit in alaska 
it's an interesting fish. It's kind of considered tarpon of the north. It has like a tarpon-like mouth. And what's I think what's fascinating for a lot of anglers is they they grow very quickly. So within the first two years, they're you know they're well over like three feet or so. So they um they they mature very quick and they're a very aggressive fighter. Uh, but they do they do sit deeper in the water column. They're a little bit rare. And Inkanoo is actually derived from a French word from the the explorers up here in northern Canada. They asked the natives, "Well, what's that fish?" And they're like didn't really get an answer so they interpreted it as inkanu which actually just meant i don't know like, <laughs> unknown so yeah it's it, yeah I, my languages are probably a little bit mixed up in there but that's roughly how the way the story goes yeah yeah it's i-n-c-o-n-n-u yeah yeah and it looks a little like uh yeah i mean it does look a little like a walleye but yeah the mouth looks just like a tarpon mouth and they're big and slender. So, yeah, it's an interesting fish. I've been, uh, it's been a little bit of my hobby pastime trying to chase them down, but they're, they sit pretty low in the water column in rivers. So it's, uh, it's, uh, it's an interesting one. Wow. This is good. We're adding a species to the list. This is, this is really cool. So, well, and, uh, Brandon talked a little bit about just the experience, you know, saying that, you know, this trip is you know, one of the best he's ever, I think he said it's the best he's been on, but describe again, just the area, you know, it's, it's mountainous, this thing, anything else you want to leave people with, uh, before, you know, we kind of hit the next, uh, topic here. Yeah. I mean, you know, topography wise, like, you know, you need to think of, think of what you see kind of in the schema that leads into it. This, this is that mountain range that, that silhouettes the back of that. That's the Cassiar mountains that, that we're, we go right into the Cassiar mountains. We go over the, uh, the Rocky mountain, uh, trench, which is a massive flat area. Uh, extending right down to New Mexico border, I believe. And then, of course, we are at the tip of the Rockies, heart of the Rockies. It's the end of the chain. So we fish all of that and and then some. So the Spitsizi and a lot of popular kind of areas, we have this massive management area called the Musquecachica. These are all encompassed in, in this fishing region that we do. So that's hence the variety, right? Good. So that's a little setting the stage for what you guys have going. Maybe we could talk a little bit about just the, you know, maybe the the seasons of of what you have going. You're coming off a season, so you have, and and I know your season isn't huge, but let's talk about that. See, like species, kind of uh, times to go up there. Yeah, let's let's talk some seasons. I think yeah. I think the seasons seasons are always you know that's fishing's all about seasons. In a place like this, uh, there's a season where it's just through the ice. And that really is a kickoff for our fishing season when the ice comes off. It's usually the, the third week in May there, I think. But it's, it's a very interesting time because there's a lot of species that spawn around then. The northern pike are very close to the ice out for a spawn. And as are the, uh, the grayling, actually. So it's an interesting time for fishing. It's incredibly aggressive for the lake trout that are on the top water, the, the walleye, and even the pike that just after spawn or probably feeding up it's june is kind of when we start our fishing trips for that reason the may one it's it's just early mid-may it's just you know what most of the spots are still iced up yeah, <laughs> like right our, our summer our summer is two intense months uh and our fall is probably a month and then you know that's it so basically a three-month fishing season yeah so so june july august are the prime and a little bit in september Exactly. Right into mid-September. And there's some good fishing to be had. And we'll we'll talk a little bit about, you know, my my scouting missions. But uh, the thing is, mid-September, the, the weather turns. Uh, you can start getting snow. 
it's uh the fishing may be good but uh it's probably not their best time to be up you know at four thousand yeah. feet up in the rockies <laughs> uh with freezing water <laughs> This is awesome. All right. And, and so, and I'm, I want to go to the planes because this is, I've never been on a float plane. I've been on some helicopters and stuff, but I'm excited about someday getting on these. Uh, so, or is you, 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 I'm guessing are the, you were the bush plane. So you probably taught Daniel about flying this. Maybe talk about those planes, how they're different, how they're unique. And then talk about what it was like when Daniel first got into the cockpit and fly it. Like, how did that, how did he learn? Did you teach him step by step? Yes, that's a, that's a great question. The airplanes we operate on the floats are a, they have a turbine single locker. It has nine passenger seats. It's a great uh, float plane. It's probably the best float plane you can get to fly around in the mountains. It has a 750 horsepower uh, turboprop, a modern engine on it, and that gets us in and out of those small mountain lakes to access the streams and the area rivers. And the second airplane we operate is a a Cessna Caravan, and uh, again, that airplane is specially equipped for our operations. We have that uh, Blackhawk Black Hawk turbine conversion, which uh, also offers uh, 200 horsepower more than the stock airplane. Uh, the airplane is on a, even on amphibious floats. And Daniel has been flying uh, both with, of those airplanes together with his brother, Michael. And uh, we are flying together in the, in the summer months to take our guests to those remote lakes uh, and streams in the backcountry. Yeah. And was it hard for you when you first got going? I always joke, I've said this before, we had uh, John Gearock on, he talked about his experience in a float plane and things like that. I always thought it was like, oh, you know, it's kind of a loose cannon, you never know who you're going to get flying your plane. But I don't think that's the way it is. Like, did you guys go through a training, you know, when you before or did you just learn on the job? Did you how did you learn or like to do it? Yeah, I, I basically got taught from some older bush pilots. But, uh, you know, our di- operation is somewhat different. We do not really employ any other pilots flying the float planes. We just do it all ourselves. I have been doing it uh, all by myself over the last several years. And with Daniel and Michael coming on, so we don't really have a hired hand. So you always fly with the experienced people at our operation. I think, you know, Dad, you know, it, there's not, there's, there's a lot of flying kind of fishing out there in places. But there isn't many flying fishing, fishing guide, bush pilots, and that's that's I think where 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 Dad always was. He loves to fish, he loves to fly the float planes, and he doesn't really want to give either up to anybody. So he <laughs> he he just wants to be out there out there with the planes. And we always kind of did that that personal connection with our guests and all those stories. We we wanted to be right there with them. So me and my brother, we were I think always with with Dad right hand. I think. I think my, my first float plane takeoff was, you know, at the ripe age of 10. Of course, oh, wow. he was on board, but I was with dad and, you know, we, he wanted to show me the ropes of it. And I didn't know at the time if aviation was for me, but it, you know, we, we grew up like that. And it's, uh, it's so nice to be doing this now, you know, in the family business together. What was yours, Danny? What was that like when you, I mean, I'm not sure how that worked. It just, was your dad like, hey, you're in the cockpit, you're the passengers, like take the wheel. Like, what was that first time like for you? Do you remember that? Were you that young? Oh, I, I was I was younger when I was in the cockpit already. I think I probably was in the cockpit before I can remember being in the cockpit. I know that there was a little headset lying around us cleaning out, I think, a closet once. And my mom said, oh, yeah, that's your little baby flying headset. Oh wow! And, uh, yeah, we we grew up like that. Me and my brother, we would go to go to uh, school on the ski plane, and you know that's 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 what you know childhood was. The planes were different back then. We had you know piston airplanes, beavers, and smaller Cessnas. 
but uh, I really do like these turbine ones. They have a lot of power. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, they're big. Yeah, they're big. You have no worry about carrying gear. It's always like a, we've talked about some float trips around Alaska, and it's always like, oh, well, there's a limited, right? You got to do multiple trips just to get your gear in there because yeah, and you get stuck in the woods and and all sorts of stuff. Like you know, I remember you know back in the day, it, it, it could happen that Dad was out fishing, and you know he would have to he would be able to fly the the clients out, but then he'd have to stay at a at a cabin overnight just because the weather turned and those smaller planes are maybe a bit slower too and. You get stuck gotcha. in the weather more. So we really like the, I think we, we've got probably what we figure like the, the Cadillac, the float plane fleets. It's pretty fun. Yeah, it looks like it. Pretty comfortable. Well, let's take it to that float plane. So if somebody is, again, they're coming up, they're flying in, you got that all set up, they land at the main lodge. And then from there, talk about that. Do you typically hop in on a daily and then hop out to some other lake and depending on what people want to fish for? I mean that's that's exactly it. That's the that's the trip in a nutshell. You uh you come on up from Vancouver. We take care of all the transport from the big city here, and it's a it's all inclusive from there. What we do is we really kind of try to gauge kind of what people are looking to fish well before they they show up at the lodge. We look at the seasons and the, the target species, and then then you know on the day by day we have we have over seventy different destinations we fly to. So we really dial it in on what's you know productive right now we use elevation we use the seasons to really drive you know that that target species right into you know the the fly of choice for our guests yeah okay and and i keep thinking about the brandon morrison because we had a podcast with him he's a i mean he's a famous hockey player which is really cool i'm not you know obviously you guys are in canada so you have the, the hockey in your blood I don't have it as much, but it was really interesting hearing because he was a great hockey player. We talked about that story, but he also did a, a video and we'll put a link to the show notes up to your lodge and he had a really great trip. Talk about that. When Brennan went up there, what time was he going? Maybe describe his trip a little bit and how you know they had a great time up there. Well, he did two trips with us and you know I think most of the time dad was actually fishing with him too. They were up there actually in July and his first trip he came up, I think it was a little bit later in the season and he was he was kind of targeting a little bit more like lake trout and stuff and then he went he really really fell in love with the grayling fishing up there so when he came back he just wanted to go for one of our outpost cabins particularly the one at frog river and he just loved it there um they got some beautiful footage uh they're you know filleting grayling he's got an awesome little video there on that too and then he went out you know, for a couple of days of flying fishing with that as well. Uh, I think they went for, for rainbow trout. Um, you know, they just had an absolute blast. And I think Brandon's still talking, talking to trips up there and, you know, we'd love to see him or see him back. I, I think he's actually planning to join us on, on this uh, chat here today. So it'd be cool to hear him too. Yeah. So my name is Brendan Morrison. I'm the host of the fishing show called real West coast, former NHL hockey player for 14 years. Uh, you know, we had a passion of chasing a rubber puck on some ice for a long, long period of my life. And now that, that passion's kind of transitioned to uh, being outdoors and, and being on the water and chasing fish. Well, if you could just close your eyes and, and, and picture the most magical destination in the world with towering mountain peaks, virgin water, a lot of untouched lakes, just clean mountain air, big trees. And on top of that, you go to... Uh, fish areas that have rarely been touched by an angler. I mean, it's, it's the ultimate. 
It really is. Um, I've been very fortunate. I've been up there twice now, filmed uh, four episodes up there, and the fishing is absolutely out of this world. It's um, it's a super unique place. It's uh, it's tough to put into words until you experience it. I mean, you have the fishing, which is absolutely phenomenal, but then on top of that, you have the travel to get to these destinations that is just as phenomenal. The the topography, uh, the landscape when you're flying around these huge jagged mountain peaks, you know, you're flying over top of glaciers, you see wildlife up in the mountains and you get to chase, you know, I, I think I've hooked and landed over seven different species of fish on my trips up there. I mean, it, it really is just mind boggling. I mean, it's, you, you have this, um, this landscape that just, it's, it's almost like when I came home, I, I'm like, how am I going to describe this to people? It's almost like it's, it's interesting. You're kind of in the, right in the middle of the continental divide at some points, separating two mountain ranges, and it's it's like Jurassic Park. It's like, you know, you have this this vast area with huge mountains. You'd think King Kong's gonna, you know, just walk out, you know, or a huge dinosaur. It's uh, it's like going back into time to an area that is just untouched and pristine. And when you're flying, and uh, you kind of you're you have these thoughts to yourself about what it's like down there, what's down there. Like, you know, there's a, oh, geez, there's a moose in the water right there. Have a look at that. Or, hey, there's a herd of caribou right there. Or look at, there's, there's a, there's sheep over there, or there's a bear. I mean, it's just, it's, it's a wild, wild place. And, and the fishing is just incredible. We had a day just talking about numbers. I mean, aside from the grayling, I mean, I know, I know what the grayling one day we caught over a hundred on the dry fly. I mean, it was absolutely insane, but, um, we went to a spot that we also fished uh, rainbow trout on the dry fly, and we fished a half a day. And I mean, I, I know it almost sounds like uh, it's fabricated, but this is the honest truth. We hooked over a hundred rainbow trout on the dry fly. I mean, you can't even believe this stuff that's happening there, but it's it's crazy. This is the total package when you're looking for an adventure trip. You know, looking to take in, uh, like you said, taking your surroundings, uh, being a, a, a wild, wild place beautiful area of the world and also you're catching tons of fish i mean when you combine that all together you know i don't know how you beat it i really don't i mean it's at the top of the list wow that's amazing so uh, or take us back on that so did you fly him in uh, and fish with brandon on that trip when they did the uh, that lake with the grayling that's right yes the way our trips uh, work uh, the guests in our lakes or chalets they all have their own uh, separate chalets at the lodge property and, and those, that's basically like a modern hotel room, but uh, you have your own uh, private cabin right by the airplane. Uh, so we have breakfast in the morning, then we bought the airplane. And in Brandon's case, uh, I flew him up to uh, Frog River to our outpost cabin. We spent the day out there. I usually have shore lunch or if you are fishing the streams that we cannot really get back to, to the airplane to prepare the fish, we take a sandwich along. We spend all day fishing out there and then we return back to the lodge in the evening, discuss the program for the next day. And uh, the next day with Brandon, we went up uh, rainbow trout fishing. We experienced a beautiful day, followed the spine of the Northern Rockies, uh, the peaks are over 10,000 feet high in some of the areas to that remote mountain lake where we dropped in and uh, we caught some gorgeous, gorgeous uh, wild native rainbow trout. 
Oh, right. Rainbow. So yeah, you, you also have rainbow trout. So that's the one trout, one of the trout species that you have. Is that the main one up there? I mean, rainbow is, is, is widespread up there. And again, they're all native. They are not stocked. Uh, we have them in the rivers. We have them in the mountain lakes up there. There is uh, dozens of places where we can take the rainbow trout fishermen. So the main species are rainbows, the, the Arctic railing and the bull trout for the fly fishermen. Yeah, and you know those those rainbows they they get big. They can get up to twelve pounds, and the the same the the bull trout are even bigger. So it's not like we'll, we'll talk gear pretty quick here. But uh, you know, Dad's always kind of chiding me when I show up with a ten pound test because if you're fishing for rainbows up there, you don't know if you're going to get into something big, and uh, and ten pound test just doesn't cut the mustard for the fish in these waters. Ten pound. What do you got to go to? Like twenty. 15, 20? I, I, go with, I go with 15 if, depending on where I am. If I'm going for where I know there's going to be big lake trout and uh, and pike, I, I'm going to step it up again. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. So, and I'm always thinking time, like it is a short season, June, July, August. So let's just say it's July. We're kind of doing the Brendan, you know, Morrison thing. And by the way, that was episode 432 uh, when Brendan was on. If somebody wanted to listen to that, we'll have a link in the show notes. But uh, so, yeah, so if it was July, we're coming in there with maybe a crew, we got a few people coming in, what would be the species we'd be thinking about there? Is that like everything, a few of one, or what would that look like? You know, that's that's exactly the beauty of it. With such a short, condensed season, you can hit multiple species in their prime. They're all pretty much feeding around the same time. So Brandon just cherry-picked it, of course. He went for the one of the prime fly fishing times, you know, being being July and August, and he he went right, you know, smack dab there end of end of July and yeah, and it's uh, and it's nice out there, right? This is not a cold, even though you're in the Rockies, it's pretty nice. The reason I feel like our hatch is really good is this is this is probably a, it's just past the heat dome of the, the hottest part of the summer, so the you know it's it's the fish are are more active, the water isn't as hot as as it could be, but the hatches are going to be really good, so. So really what, you know, to get back to your question, what you're hitting that time of the year, let's call it midsummer in the Rockies, it's going to be rainbow trout. It's going to be bull trout. It's going to be the graylings. And what's really fun on a fly rod, I find, is the pike. So you get those four on a fly rod easily. They're all in their prime around then. Excellent, like, fishing. It's, it's crazy. The other two species we target, they're earlier in the season. I find to get get a walleye or a lake trout on a fly rod. I mean that that's gonna that's gonna be a June thing. It's it's just they're gonna be too deep. Otherwise, you can also go really really late in the season. But that's uh, that's for people who want to spend the night like myself out out on freezing lakes and right. and tying knots on on monofilament that doesn't really want to be twisted <laughs> anymore. Gotcha. Okay. And 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 I, well, so for me, I'm thinking. You know, I've caught tons of rainbow. I love rainbows. All, everybody loves rainbows. But, I mean, bull trout, grayling, and pike are definitely three species for me that I would love to uh, to tie into. Maybe, um, I don't know, but, or what, what's your uh, what's your species of choice? Do you, do you have one over the years, or do you kind of like everything? I get the question asked often, and I tell you, I, I don't really have a, a favorite species. I just like them all. I like the variety we have up there, and to eat the any of those fish. Uh, are they good? Are, are the pike good eating? I don't order fish anywhere else except the ones I catch up north. He's very particular about his fish. Um, and even even when it comes to fishing too, he, he just fishes up there because just the abundance that we have. And it just, 
Yeah, but the, the beauty of it is there as well. Like we can have a shore lunch because they're such healthy populations. You know, the regulations up there allow for like two to four fish depending on the season per person. Like it's it's something that, you know, people look at and they say, oh, you can eat a grayling. Right. And it's, well, yeah, yeah you can. It's like a trout, there, right? There's plenty of them and they're they're fantastic fish. Yeah. What about what about pike and bull trout? Can you eat those? Would you eat those? Yes, the the pike is an excellent uh, fish to eat. No kidding. Yes, right. uh, and I to tell you the truth, it, it's one of my favorite fishes. The the big issue is the pike is you know you have to know how to fillet them, otherwise you have those little Y bones in it, and I just hate eating fish when I have to pick the bones out of my mouth. But if you <laughs> know how to fillet a pike, I tell you the you probably it's gonna become your favorite meat uh, to oh, eat. Oh, this is great! I think awesome. the thing about a pike, Dave that really it's the filling of it that gave it such a bad reputation. Plus I've also kind of read that if, if you catch them in warmer waters, swampy waters, they can taste swampy, but that's not the case when you're dealing with, you know, with the you know frigid glacial style waters of, of the Northern Rockies. So these fish are, I say they're like halibut, like they have that firm flesh of, of like a halibut. They're muscular, they're strong and oh man, just just to catch them alone is is awesome. But to to get to to you know eat your catch, that's uh, that's pretty darn cool. Wow. Okay. So this is good. So pike is a valid. I mean, we talk a lot about you always you know down here musky pike sort of thing. But pike seems to be that species that actually bites quite a bit. Do you find that they're fairly easy to catch once you find them? You know, I I got a couple stories for you, but yeah, the the pike the the pike they are aggressive. When you're when they're on the bite, you don't need to move your boat. I was out this this season fishing with with some guys or you know casting their streamers out. They didn't have to cast more than twenty feet. They're just sitting in a you know shallow weed bed. I think the not the water is maybe six feet deep at max. They're casting their streamers out, retrieving them. They they were fishing for four or five hours in the same spot, catching all sorts of pike, ranging from you know smaller five pounders up to 20 pound pike and we can catch them up to 40 pounds this wasn't the spot where we go for the monsters but this was it was a nice little weed bed and what was really funny about it is you know there is a fly fisherman you think oh going after a pike oh you know there's when there's rainbows and grayling but you know that pike is such an aggressive fish you strip a fly even a even a mouse on the surface they hit that thing they do acrobatics like that's a big fish it hammers hard. It it just races to fly. I I don't know. It, they're they're a total thrill. And while I was out with that shoot, like with those guys, I saw a huge mayfly hatch. And you know, it's like, oh man, I should I should switch over to you know maybe a, a spent a spent spinner or something, right? But you know, those those mayflies were probably the safest flies I've ever seen. I saw one grayling go for it. He was a pretty good size. I think he was. Uh, there's maybe a good like 16, 18 inch grayling. Like we get them, we get them fairly commonly in that size. Was, this all is on his own. I was like, I wonder why. And then I, bam, I saw all the pike around and he was, he was gone. Like those, those mayflies, those mayflies were left unhindered on their hatch. Oh, gotcha. While everyone was out on the pike. <laughs> so those pike, yeah, that, the grayling is one of their, that's their meal. That's a meal for yeah, the pike. That's the thing I find like the, the pike, I mean, they will eat on everything that they, they hunt the Rocky mountain whitefish that are in our area too. We don't really trophy fish them as much, but they, they'll feed on the grayling. They'll feed on the lake trout. They'll feed on 
themselves. <laughs> like they're, it's not uncommon when you catch a pike. You know, that's why you go for a very strong braided or steel lead, uh, leader with them to get two fish on at once. Like it, they, we, we've had pike follow another pike right into the net. Jeez. They're vicious. <laughs> yeah. How are you guys fishing? Like typically, you know, well, we've got a few species, pike, grayling. I know grayling, we talked dry flies. That's one amazing way to do it. But like with pike or bull trout, how are you? Are you fishing out of the boat or is this something where most people are off the bank? So uh, the pike, I would say, are going to be very, very heavily on a boat. The main two tackle there is going to be a streamer, eight weight rod, usually a floating line with that, with that steel leader I might have mentioned. That's kind of the typical pike setup. The uh, the bull trout you you can catch them off the bank or off of a off of a gravel bar, but sometimes you do. That's that's the beauty of what we have. Like we have about forty different boats in the backcountry. So oh, nice. you know when we're out guiding, we'll also have you know one of the guides out you know looking looking for the fish as well too. And you know the the bull trout the bull trout you'll sometimes catch them catch them out on on uh, on the water as well because they do patrol quite a bit. They do. Okay. So, so bull trout. And so this isn't like bull trout. You're in the streams and, and there are some streams you guys are fishing there. Or is it mostly lakes? No, we're easily 50, 50. I mean, when we're talking streams, we have about 40 prolific streams and rivers that we hit. We pretty much everywhere we land with the float plane is, is a lake. So those lakes are very abundant as well too. But for the fly fishing, we're, we're fishing mostly rivers and streams. So yeah, the, the the bull trout they do like the larger waters, so that's why you can get a boat into it. Okay, wow. So so basically, yeah, I mean, you've got these three months packed with just pretty much whatever you want to do. You know, whether you want to be on the surface, going streamers, out of the boat, or off the bank. Those remote ca- the, the remote cabins, those outpost cabins, is that something that a lot of people take advantage of, or is that kind of more of a unique thing? Their people are staying out there. They're a little bit more unique. We do offer them guided, but most people do them as a self-guided trip. They're they're like a more, you know, basic experience. You know, while while our all-inclusive is a, uh, you get all the modern amenities right at the resort, while the uh, the outposts, you know, they're, they're very well outfitted. But, you know, it's a, it's a wood stove and uh, I, we put a, we have a little generator there. So you have, you know, light and power to recharge cameras. And like, but the the fishing at them is just spectacular. I, uh, yeah, they're fun too. Yeah, that's cool. So, or as I, I have a question for you, this is, uh, you probably haven't seen this movie, but I just watched it. It was probably maybe one of the worst movies ever, but have you heard of the uh, cocaine bear? You guys heard of that one? This movie doubt that just came out. Yeah. I don't think he saw that. <laughs> you probably have, don't watch it if you, if you have a choice, but I say that because I know a question you probably commonly get is bears, right? People are worried yeah. about bears. And, and I know that, you know, you, you will not probably have an encounter, no issues. But this cocaine bear move was crazy. Literally, somebody was flying over remote sort of Canada or wherever it was. And, and they threw a bunch of cocaine out. It was a drug dealer, threw it out the window. And a bear got a hold of the cocaine and basically started uh, eating it and then killing everybody, if you can imagine that. So um, that's a random story. But tell me this, like the bears, wildlife, all that. Is, is there any worries there? And then also, what are the wildlife we're going to be seeing out there? In our area, the big wildlife populations are the stone sheep. We have a moose, we have a elk, a caribou, and then of course we have grizzlies and black bears. Now, the big difference between us and fishing on the coast, on the salmon streams, the bears are not on the rivers. 
they do not uh, relate that those rivers have fish in it, which we fish up here. While on the coast, you see the, the bears uh, fishing and basically competing with the fishermen for a spot to to, to catch uh, salmon. salmon yeah. When the salmon runs are in, the fish in our area, they're in there all the time in those streams. They may migrate between the stream and the lake, but they're native to the area. They don't go anywhere. And that's the other big advantage. We always have to fish. The timing is not as critical as if you go salmon fishing on the coast. But that also keeps the bears away because they they do not come and, and, and fish our streams. And there isn't that, you know, that decay like the salmon, right? The the salmon, you know, a big salmon run a couple of weeks later is a huge attraction for the bears. They they chime in on that. So yeah, we you know, we, we have bears in our area, but they're we've never had a problem with them i think mainly for that reason they're 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 not really into the fish and you know we we go respectfully with them and yeah so you'll see them out there will, will you see bears and caribou while you're out there in the summer oh you will see bears caribous stone sheep like that said while we're flying out over the mountains you'll probably see mountain goats up at the top oh, you'll wow. probably see the grizzlies Grizzlies right on the top of the mountains as they're chasing these goats. No kidding, they're they're climbing up the mountains. They're up, they're up there, which is another nice thing. They're not down in the valleys when we're flying. Oh, they're not. Yeah. So, so they don't they don't hang down at the valleys too much. Most of the wildlife you see is uh, when we fly to those remote streams and lakes. Oh, uh, you, yeah. The wildlife you may see on a lake is moose. There's usually a cow moose and a calf in the summer months there on the on the shores feeding on the weeds, but. Uh, other wildlife, uh, no, you usually don't see it from, from the lake while you're fishing. Uh, again, you, you see them mostly uh, in the air as we travel to the Up in the mountains. Up in the mountains, wow. Cool. So there's definitely going to be some wildlife. That's always a big. I always think of these trips as like the fishing is definitely part of it, but it's just everything, right? The experience and, and this, what sounds amazing about this is that you're going into a really, truly remote area in the, in the northern Rockies, like we said. And you're probably, when you're fishing, are you likely not going to see anybody else out there fishing? You won't see anybody. That's the beauty of it. And that's the, that's kind of what, you know, the whole admission is about. It's getting to a spot that only you have access to with a float plane, with your little group of, uh, group of favorite fishermen. Like it's, it's amazing. We, we take a maximum of nine guests a week, 70 different fishing destinations. It spreads out that probably most of these spots see maybe 30 anglers a season because we also rotate them a lot too with the season. Gotcha. Okay. So this is something where if somebody's interested, they probably want to get a head of start because it might take a while to get a book, a booking, especially for the prime time. Exactly. Like if someone wants to fish, you know, the, the prime times or even just fish with us on these trips, it, this takes a bit of planning. It's best to get in contact earlier and just, you know, see kind of, you know, what, what you're looking for to do and, you know, shoot me a line. I, I'm always happy to chat fishing, but that's why that drive-in thing is always difficult because it's, it's so hard when people want to fish and they, they just show up and they're, we just, you know. Generally our trip needs to be planned and you need to come up for a, for a week to, to really experience it and have to take the opportunity and fish for all those pieces. If you just come for a day or two, to, to be honest, it's probably not really worth it. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, just like anything, you could catch it on a day where maybe it's not perfect conditions and having a week. We do have that occasion that people drop by, want to just uh, do a day of fishing. You know, they, we, we may be able to help and do it for them. But you know what? Most of those people come back the next year and book the for week, a week package. Yeah. <laughs> oh, right. Yeah. Not the case of it, you know. Yeah. 
That's right. Okay. I think the beauty of fishing is, you know, when you don't, don't feel rushed, I think it, it always works best. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. Well, I think we painted the picture pretty good. Um, you know, I, I wanted to talk species and talk if somebody's thinking about heading up there, what they can expect. Anything else we're, we're missing here we want to shed some light on as far as, I, I know there's a lot to, we could dig into any of these species and, and go deep, but. You know, we, we talked a bit about the species, but, you know, I think we could call them the big four. They're the, the, the grayling, the pike, the rainbow trout, the bull trout, but the other two, you know, the walleye is, is a little bit of a gear fisherman's dream, but that's that's a fun fish on a fly rod too. The underappreciated one, I, it's such a tricky one, is a lake trout. People always forget about the lake trout. And that's one I want to catch. I mean, lake trout to me is actually very high on the list. Like I would love to catch a lake it's, trout, right? It's, it's kind of a, yeah. It's a cool fish. Like it's the, the lake trout in the end that has two body morphs. It has a slender body morph. I think it's around their kind of their sexual maturity around two or three years of age. They, they either will stay slender and they max out, I think around 12 ish pounds or they turn into the, the big, you know, honkers we know is like the fats and they go up to, you know, 40 plus pounds up in these waters here. And they're totally different fish fly fishing. I love to go, you know, of course I like kind of the more nimble, that slender type there. Cause they're, they're just like catching, you know, a rainbow. They're, they're a lot of fun. They have, have quite a bit of power. You know, I can't tell the difference between catching a bull trout or one of those lake trouts like that. That's what I was just going to, I was going to say they, they're pretty much very similar, right? They're very similar. The difference being that the, you know, they're also in the char family too. I like catching those lake trout. I think sometimes people kind of miss out on them. The only problem with them with the fly fishing is if you're not, wanting to get exclusively them they kind of sit in a in a season you know they sit more in june which is is a little bit early for some of the other species there's you know you can catch what we call the grand slam or the the fishing grand slam of the rockies up there but it really boils down to you know that that time to get catch everything and the, the lake trout is usually the one that kind of that's the one that, that breaks breaks the dashes the dream because it's a little bit deeper than you'd like Gotcha. And, and what is the Grand Slam of the, of the Northern Rockies up there? Yeah. So, I mean, that's that, that's catching all six species there on a trip. Wow. Six species. Six species. That's crazy, right? You'd have to go, what, in late June? You can catch six species in a trip. And, you know, if a lucky day, day you can easily catch, catch you know, an IGFA Grand Slam of three species of trout. The, the go-to time for that is usually June, early July, because the lake trout makes it a little bit more challenging every other season, but it is, uh, yeah, it's not uncommon for our guests to catch a grand slam up there. And the grand slam is, is it, is it rainbow grayling, bull trout, pike, walleye, lake trout? Yeah. So the grand slam is the six trophy species we have up, uh, up there. That's going to be the, you know, the, the classic, the rainbow trout, the Arctic grayling, the, uh, the bull trout, and then, you know, maybe more exotic being the, the lake trout, the northern pike, the walleye. That is the the grand slam of the uh, of the BC Rockies here. Okay. And, and are walleye or pike uh, harder to catch up there? I would say the walleye is harder for fly fishing. It seems like you need to go a little bit deeper. The pike are really good for the fly fishing. They're excellent for the sight fishing because they do like to come into the shallows while you just don't, I just don't see the walleyes. Like that. That said, the interesting thing about the walleyes is they do school up a lot more than the pike. So once you are on them, you're you know you're going to be getting a couple. 
you catch one, you catch more. <laughs> right, right, right. And and so if we were coming up there, you know, we would be flying out in a float plane and we would have either Daniel, you, yours, or somebody else or your brother that would be kind of guiding. Is yeah. that how that would work? Or do you, yeah. One of three of us or all of us. Yeah. Gotcha. So you go get us in the spot where the fish are. And then we'd hop out there with the gear. What would be the gear? You mentioned the eight weight. Does it kind of like bring a, a six weight and an eight weight and, and, and some sinking lines? Exactly. That's that's gear wise what you want to do. But um, on the note there, you know, myself, Mike or, or uh, my father, like we're, we're with you for the whole day. So it's not a, you know, get out and spend a day We're we're there with you for the whole day, which is pretty nice. So you don't have to have to be writing things on napkins to remember it's a fully guided trip and we have some assistant guides with us as well. Oh, I see. Okay. And yeah, gear wise, you know, I think that's, that's a good one. Yeah. Six and weight, eight weight, you know, we talked earlier a little bit about the, uh, or we've talked about, you know, rainbow trout and sometimes getting into a bull trout, you know, having, having a six weight allows you kind of the leverage to work with those bigger fish when they hit don't you know tie on too light of a leader the fish up here there there's so little pressure there there's no need to have these fine little leaders on it you know go for a 15 15 pound test don't don't waste your time with something that's going to snap when the big boy gets on because it's going to happen during a day of fishing like this so yeah six weight is what we swing most of the time when we're you know in the rivers and streams if we're going for pike big lake trout. Now we're going to go to the eight weight. Those fish will go up to 40 pounds. If you're fighting one of those, you don't want to do it on a six weight. Uh, no. <laughs> yeah. Or even an eight weight, right? If you get a 40 pounder, I mean, what's the, what's the largest fish you guys have seen out there? I don't know. Is, is pike the one that gets the largest or what would be the big uh, giant? It's lake trout and pike. Okay. Generally, we catch pike in the 30 to 40 pound range by lake trouts and that size, they usually go deep. And uh, that's a little bit tougher for the fly fisherman to get down. Oh, okay. Yeah, but you can get them with gear. Oh, yeah, you can get them with gear, yeah. yeah. So you can, the odds fly fishing to get into like a 30-plus a pound fish is actually pretty high depending on the spot we go into. So we can really narrow it in. If someone says, I just want to catch a bunch of pike, I just want to feel what the pike are like on a fly rod, we got a spot for that. If people want to go for big, big pike, there's spots for that too. We have... The same with rainbows. We have spots where there's prolific rainbows, and then there's spots where we're going to go for, you know, big trophy rainbows. There's spots for all the species that 70 different spots to target. It really kind of gets there. So it really makes it easy with the gear selection. You kind of know what you want to fish for the day. We sit down with the guides. We talk about what we want to bring out. But that that eight weight, I find, is kind of the best compromise of castability, and it allows you to, you know, fight a bigger fish. Like, you're in for a fight regardless with a with a 30 plus pound fish on an eight weight <laughs> yeah yeah that's right but yeah there's no reason you need a 10 weight because that's just going to tire your arm casting that it's a 10 weight the 10 weight is just hard to cast and that's why i think that six weight is you know the perfect balance that that's the go-to rod every single single time except for the pike or the big lake trout because that's there you're just you're you're just undergunning yourself a little bit too much and even the eight weight's probably a bit undergunned when you get in a big one but you know, you'll still survive probably. Yeah. Okay. And then you guys, and we talk actually, you know, occasionally about conventional fishing, just because a lot of times some of the best fly anglers we've had on here that have like top of the game in fly fishing, they've talked about the influence of conventional fishing has helped them get better at fly, right? Like the, the types of bugs and just understanding that. How do you guys conventional wise, like what would be 
are, are you doing, um, you're doing quite a bit of that as well. Maybe talk about that. How, how would you guys be targeting or which species would be better with conventional gear? With conventional gear, you probably would enjoy the walleye fishing. You probably would enjoy the fishing early in the season, just after the ice goes out. The lake trouts go on a feeding frenzy. You find the lake trouts uh, basically on the surface. It's a great time to uh, fly fish for them. But uh, the spin cast, uh, I would like, I personally like to do that in June. Although it's good all uh, throughout the season, but June is, is the lake trout month, in my opinion. Yeah, and I think that the gear fishing or conventional fishing uh, species, I'd say that the one that is super fun up there is the lake trout. I think that that is a that's an awesome fish. It's the size of a of a king salmon, pretty much, uh, going into the forty pound range there. And you can just get down to them with the with the gear that the fly is just it's hard to you just can't so, yeah. You know, you can play around with sinking lines and you know all these things, and you can get on them, but you'll just I just don't think anyone can get consistently as a gear fisherman, you know, pulling a spoon or uh Yeah. The spoon, yeah. I, I talked to Phil Roy, our, our littoral zone, you know, host to those that know Phil, he's he's definitely the stillwater guy, but he's mentioned that before. That's the challenge, is just getting so deep, you know, you can do it, but yeah, it's it's a lot of work. So so that's what it is with the conventional gear, it's like a spoon or what what would be a what would be one of your what would be the one um lure you'd be using for lake trout? My favorite lure on spoon is the five of diamond. Five of diamond, okay. Yeah, it's uh, or the red and white daredevil. Map spinners work quite well as uh, too. We use single uh, barbless hooks in those streams and lakes. And uh, the size of the spoon, you know, uh, anywhere from a quarter to one ounce. And, you know, I, I have to say, if you're out fly fishing, sometimes it's nice to have a conventional angler with you. It sometimes animates the 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 fish i've i've seen it a couple times and i think it's good even for our guides so we always like to bring along you know even a a cheap little spin rod just to animate the fish with like the sparkle of a mep spinner going through the water can all of a sudden get the bite on again oh there you go it's a it's a cool little little thing it it just works and uh you you can toss uh you know egg sucking leeches all you want all and and if the bite's not there, but it seems like when you drag a little little uh, MEP spinner through, all of a sudden they might be right back on it again. That's right. And the five of diamonds, I I think I know that one. So it's red and white. It's basically a spoon that's red and white, and it's kind of got diamond shaped well, on it. The red and I white is the daredevil. The five of diamond is basically a a yellow base body with uh, five uh, red dark red dots on it. And I always like some dark red in my lures, uh, or even to a certain degree the in the flies, because we have lots of freshwater shrimp, and they are red. Oh. And many of the, the fish feed on them, and you actually see it in, the, in their meat, the, the meat of those lake trouts, it's, it's totally red. It's like, like a salmon, oh, no and kidding. it goes back to what they are feeding on. Yeah, right. It's, it's, it's totally fascinating, and I think, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a great time to even talk to flies, too, because you, like, what what we're I, I can tell you the gold standard probably the fly that i've caught the most on and i'm sure everyone said it before is the woolly bugger exactly the woolly bugger the woolly bugger will always get you a fish it you know rain or shine it's it's going to get you a fish but um no we we do really well with uh caddis flies too like a you know elk hair deer hair caddis parachute adams copper johns those are all super successful flies for us up here you know it's also don't underestimate like something simple like a tan tom thumb. Oh yeah, a beetle Classic. pattern. Yeah, Royal Coachman's 
you know, dad's seen Royal Coachman's catch fish for over 30 years up here. Like there you go. Those classic, you know, dry fly patterns, you know, the, the nymphs, the bead heads, those catch fish up here. You don't, you don't like, they're not picky. They're it, very selective. Yeah. They're not selective. That's what's great about, I think this trip is that it's, yeah, you don't have to reinvent the wheel. This is lots of the old traditional stuff works. I think of the, the brook trout, we're doing a brook trout trip down you know, kind of on the East Coast next year. And, and I keep asking about brook trout. And everybody's saying, hey, they're easy to catch. You yeah. know, you could just go, you're up in the mountain streams, these tiny fish. It's awesome. Um, but I also think like Chad Johnson was on the podcast. He's a big streamer guy down on like the White River 4. And he's a big fly design. He's got this fly called the Big Johnson, you know. And he talked about how he wants the fly to, he strips it, strips it, and then he stops it. And he, he designs it so that the fly turns broadside to the fish because the predator fish wants to T-bone it. It wants to break it in half. You know what I mean? So there are some technical things if you get into places where you want that fly to do things, but I don't think it sounds like you have to get to that level. You don't, you don't need to get too elaborate. Um, that said, when, you know, talking flies you may as well say, say a word or two for streamers, you know, that's what the bull trout, that's what the pike will go for. These are, these are more predatory fish by extension. Also the lake trout, you know, something that looks like a bait fish. And, uh, you know, I, the, the go-to bait fish up here are often going to be something like a, a, a white fish or a sculpin, but also the grayling and the, uh, the rainbows are, are actually, they find themselves on the menu for these bigger fish as well too. So you imitate those um, with, uh, with streamers and you can have some excellent success. And those predators, when they hit these streamers, you know, that they're hitting them like dinner's getting away. So, right. Yeah. That, that was what Chad said. He said, basically, and again, this is a different area, but he said they come in, they T-bone it to like kill it, and then they turn around and eat it head first, right? So yeah. that the gills don't get caught up. But um, this is great. Well, tell me, uh, I had a couple other notes before we you know start to think about taking it out of here, but are there hot springs? Is there a hot springs up? That's something I'm, I'm always interested in hearing in your area. You know, there is a lot of uh, geothermal activity up there. We have one of our outpost cabins has a hot springs right at it. Uh, but oh, wow. even more conveniently, right from the lodge, there's actually a renowned hot springs on the Alaska Highway called the Liard Hot Springs. It's it's like about less than 30 minutes from our lodge. Oh, no, nice. Lear, it's Liard? Liard River Hot Springs. Oh, it's okay. probably one of the like hidden gems of the Alaska Highway. If you've traveled the highway, you've probably heard about them. They're right at our doorstep pretty much. Perfect, you know, to rest, you know, that casting uh, casting elbow after. Sure. Wow. So you have a outpost cabin where you can literally hang in, at yeah, a and cabin. We have an outpost with, with, you know, springs as well. And yeah, there's, there's a lot of like springs all kind of in the area up here. It's, it's pretty cool. Like, you know, we're sitting on, on, you know, the continental divide. Um, it makes up a large part of our, our fishery. So I think because of that, there's also these fissures that lead to these hot springs. And are you guys going to the other side of the divide or is this mostly on the West side yeah. of the we, we do. We fish actually two different watersheds. It's 45,000 square miles of fishing territory and two watersheds being both the Pacific and the, uh, of course, the Atlantic there or Arctic. Yeah, we, we fish the upper reaches of the Stikine River area, and uh, which, of course, is the Pacific drainage. And then, uh, for example, Frog River is right at the Continental Divide. You basically can walk from the cabin to from, from the Arctic drainage over to the Pacific drainage. Just being on a spot like this in the middle of nowhere, it just gives you goosebumps, you know. Amazing. It's pretty cool because you see it in the fish as well. 
Um, you know, that's why we have Arctic grayling. We have rainbows. Those two are sometimes directly linked. Like you don't have any Ar- any Arctic grayling in the Pacific watershed. And at a place like Frog River, I'll be catching a whole bunch of grayling and I need only, you know, walk, you know, maybe, maybe 30 minutes, a little bit through a bush path. And all of a sudden there's no more grayling. And there's oh, wow. like a light switch. There's, there's th- like hundreds of grayling and then there's none. Like if there's, if there's a fish that's totally prolific in our area, apart from the rainbows, schools and schools of grayling. God. Yeah. Wow. Lots of grayling. And, and what's the, uh, it, Nanda peak? Is that at one of the big mountains or one of the big peaks out there? It's a beautiful peak that looks kind of onto the, uh, Munch Lake Valley. I really, uh, really love it up there. I, um, spent a lot of time. We do like hiking trips up in that area too. Oh yeah. But actually probably the most impressive mountain looking over kind of where I grew up in, in Munchell Lake there is actually Mount Peterson. It's, uh, it's named after, uh, one of the first kind of trappers in the area, uh, apart from, you know, the first nations, he, he, he lived it there and he, uh, he got a peak named after him when they built the Alaska highway. Oh, nice. There you go. Get another history story. We'll have to follow up on. What is, do you guys do throughout the year? Now you have the fishing, the fly fishing conventional. Do you do other things? Like, are you hitting hunting or what, what's that look like the rest of your year? You know, uh, this time of the year, we, we've just flown our float planes down for the winter. We, we get all the, the major servicing done. We do some training. We prepare for the next season. But uh, we're also, you know, we're coming right into the holidays here. Uh, we've got, uh, in a couple of weeks' time, I've got uh, New Year's Eve uh, happening. We have, a, we have an all-inclusive trip out of the city. And now, instead of chasing rainbows, we're chasing northern lights. Oh, nice. It's, uh, it's pretty cool. We get the northern lights in British Columbia uh those hot springs uh it's it's a really fun winter package so we do we do quite a lot over over the winter less fishing but it's it's uh there's always something going on yeah so so you see the northern lights out there is that pretty common throughout the year or just during the winter they're very common uh from probably uh mid-august on it just needs to get dark enough to to see them and you know new year's eve it's pitch dark it's it's perfect for that so it's uh it's pretty cool. Also a fun one we do in the winter is uh dad builds a, a big runway on the on the lake on the ice and we have a host our ice strip fly in. So it's we make a five thousand foot runway, invite all sorts of you know, just it's open. People can just uh, contact us and then they can uh can come and land and spend a couple of days at the lodge and you know, swap fishing stories and flying stories and just have a good time. So do you put um, like wheels when you land on the ice? Yeah, we, well, one of our float planes we use for the fishing trips is actually on amphibs. So that means it has a landing gear on it as well as its floats. So we, uh, we just, we usually use that one more in the winter. It's pretty fun. Okay. Wow. So people can, so you're talking the, the lake, the Mancho Lake? Right in, right in front of the lodge. Yeah. Yeah. So right there. So people can land in the winter and this is like what through December, January, February sort of thing. Yeah, it's probably, it's usually always nowadays more starting kind of mid-January. We've just noticed that the ice just isn't thick enough nowadays in December. Oh, right. Yeah, you guys have probably seen some change. Yeah, being in the Northern Rockies, I'm sure you've seen like climate change, some changes in the, the glaciers and stuff like that up there. No, it's it's definitely getting, the winters are getting milder. However, they almost seem to last a little bit longer. And uh, there, there is probably a little bit of a shift happening in the, in the seasons. But uh, it hasn't really affected the fishing up here. 
I find it almost has made it like dad said, the seasons are a little bit longer. It feels like uh, our fall is milder. So, you know, now we're, now we're fishing in mid September where in the past, you know, that, that some of the spots were starting to freeze even. So, you know, it's not a great thing, but it, that the fish I think are, are enjoying the extra, extra month or so of feed. Also the, the insect activities holds up longer. Yeah. Okay. I, I was seeing caddis up until October 15th or something up there. And like a caddis hatch that time of the year has blew my mind, but it's, it's still, it's still happening. And I remember when I was pretty young growing up there that there was already snow on the ground. Right. Yeah. So it's, so you're seeing just like everybody else, things are changing up there and kind of a joke, but you know, Glacier National Park down south of you in the U S you know, they are talking about changing the name because the glaciers are going away. Right. But it's kind of sad, but there, there, there definitely is some implications, but yeah. 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 But, but probably more of the reason to uh, get up there now before, you know, things change even more. I mean, it seems like obviously we're, there's fluctuations in climate. And I had a question for you guys. I was just curious because I love the conservation stuff going on around the country, around the world. Do you guys have, are there any groups up there? I was going to give a shout out to Federation or Fly Fishers International, um, who does some good work. But do you guys, is that something that you see out there at all? Are there any Canadian based conservation groups that are doing work? We see the conservation uh, more or less from uh, conserving the Northern Rockies. We have a good friend, Wayne Solchak. He was very instrumental to create that uh, protected area. And the Northern Rockies actually are British Columbia's uh, biggest protected area oh, wow. and, and yeah, provincial the, park. The and that only came, the Chica, and that only came over the last 20 years. Prior to that, there was mining activity. There was the potential of uh, logging activities. And some people uh, seen the writing on the wall and decided to protect it and keep the roads out. And uh, it's a very unique area. And there's, uh, there's lots of protection going on on that level, you know, to, to maintain the wildlife, uh, maintain the biodiversity, and maintain the hunting opportunities, and, uh, and, and especially also the fishing in our case. Yeah, and, you know, we work quite a bit with Fishing BC as well, too. They, they have a lot of stewardship programs that they link into to protect these wild fisheries. Uh, we work a lot with actually, you know, fisheries in, in Canada as well. Uh, they're always, when they're up in the area, they love to talk to us since they don't actually even have many opportunities to see these backcountry and only access areas as well. So it's, it's always, uh, we always, we, we see this as a long-term thing. We see it as stewardship. You know, we, we live from this land and we, we love, you know, these fish to have healthy populations. Wow. That's so cool. So, so yeah, so uh, Daniel on gear, um, you know, we're, we're coming up here, we're getting ready for this trip. A lot of people, you know, sometimes maybe don't have all the gear, but for somebody that wants to have all the gear, what do you tell them? What do we need to do so we don't forget anything here? Well, I mean, the, the fun answer is I can go into the list of things that you need, but we also can supply all the tackle for, for a trip like this. We stock all our anglers with either a six or an eight weight. It really depends on the species you're going for. Those big pike and lake trout, those are going to really need uh, the, the heavier rod and the eight weight. While, you know, you do pretty good with a six weight on everything else. Six weight seems like it's a little bit heavy for, for maybe going after some rainbow trout. But when you talk about 15 pound plus bull trout mixed in with those rainbows, uh, you'll sure be happy you have, you know, the backbone of a six weight. So. Those are kind of go-to rods. A six and an eight is is what we stock. It's also what I always recommend. Um, yes, you know when you have a forty-pound pike, an eight weight is is going to be undergunned. 
But uh, the thing is, it's nicer to have have that casting, so you at least can cast it out. If you go with a with a ten weight rod, it's going to be super stiff to get into that. Really, just for that for that one big pike, I think you're better off with the with the eight weight, and you can play it a bit. The pike, especially, they they tire fairly quick, so you don't want to play them too long. The mortality goes up, but the eight weight, the eight weight, I will do the job even if you need to on a big fish. Okay. All right, and what if somebody's thinking about their uh, either a big fly tire or they want to get a bunch of flies? They love the oh, flies. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. The flies, like you know, there again, we the, the easy solution we can deal with it for you. But you know, that's that's not the the fun. If you love making your own flies and prepping for a trip like this, you know, we have a lot of guests that do that. They 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 uh they get me to send pictures of insects that that are up there in hatches, and they will start matching it. You know, the go to is probably a caddis. Uh, you, you know, a caddis pattern, you know, an elk hair, deer hair, those, those are going to do really well. Um, kind of in size, size 12 generally is, is a good spot to go. Those are just good general purpose flies. Another one I would say that's really easy is like that Tom thumb, easy to tie. Uh, it's kind of cool if you're just getting into fly tying and you've got this trip, uh, booked on in, you might want to, you know, try your variant of this classic pattern and the Tom thumbs, an easy one to do and you will catch fish on it, which is pretty cool. Yeah, the mayflies, a little bit trickier to tie, of course. You know, you got like the parachutes. Like I find those parachute atoms, they're just awesome fly, simple. And they seem to always just work. You can get into, you know, PMDs and and really specialize. But the thing to remember is these are wild and native fish and they're very opportunistic. They have a very short feeding period with the ice out being some in some spots just in the start of June. And, you know, ice can come in already in the end of September. So they're not, you know, to match colors and everything, like you don't always need to. You're almost better with a general purpose pattern and then going there. And the same goes for, you know, the subsurface stuff, you know, to go with like beadhead nymphs, you know, a prince nymph or, you know, copper johns, like that stuff, you know, if it gets you down there a bit faster, that's probably better than getting to colors. Gotcha. What about the, what about the humpy? You guys ever used the humpy, the dry fly? Oh yeah. Yeah. I love, I love the humpy. Yeah. The humpy does really good. This is cool. Yeah. I'm thinking of a cool place where you just go and be like, you know what? I'm going to bring up all the old school, cool, traditional dry flies. Oh, like the uh, yeah, stimulator, like Royal, Royal Coachman. Stim- Royal Coachman stimulators. Yeah. This Royal Coachman I find is one of those flies you barely find at the shops nowadays. It's kind of so retro, right? But man, we have a lot of guests that, that swing a Royal Coachman and they do really good. Yeah, that's good. I'm just looking at the Tom Thumb. I love it because it's such a classic. We have a pattern that we use on the uh, on the Deschutes River, and we call it's the tight down caddis. Essentially, it looks a lot like the Tom Thumb, just without that clump. Um, but there's some cool history on the Tom Thumb. It looks like it was created in the 1940s by Jack Horner. So good, good yeah. history stuff. Awesome. So what else on gear? We got we got flies. What about lines? This just kind of bring up yeah. a dry line or what? Yeah, you know, I I find a good floating line, um, you know, that matches your rod, of course. You know, it, you don't need to have, like, I, I sometimes like to go with, like, Rio's precision lines, like a Rio trout precision line, because you don't need to, we don't need massive casts. We're fishing mountain streams and rivers, they're all freestone. You don't, you really don't need to, you know, get a 30-foot cast out there most of the time. You know, a 15-foot cast is already enough. You know, if you if you do anything more than 20, you're probably bouncing the bank or something. So, so a good, a good line that shoots well accurately is more important than, you know, some sort of, you know, 
big spay line or something. It can be done, but I don't think it's uh, it's really going to be more effective. I also like a sinking line. Depends on the species you're going for. But, you know, some, some trout fishermen, they like to mix it up and go for a lake trout from time to time. Or even sometimes a bull trout. Those, those species, the lake trout especially, like to be deeper. Uh, so to have a nice sinking line, that just gives you another tool in your arsenal. And it can happen, too, that, you know, these are all wild and native fish. You have a weather system come in, uh, the pressure increases, the fish are going to be a bit deeper. And if you have a, have a sinking line, well, it just makes life a lot easier. You, you, get, you get down to right to the fish. I've, I've had a couple days where, you know, it, it happens, right? You're, you're fishing. The, the floating line and the nymph just isn't getting deep enough. You swap it out and bam, you're on fish again. Yeah, perfect. And and we'll put links out to the Littoral Zone podcast. Part of our Phil Roy and our network is oh, doing yeah, he's, this. He's, and, he's excellent, yeah. Yeah, and he really broke down. We don't have enough time here to break down everything, but he went into like two episodes just on fly lines. So I'll put those in the show notes so people can dig in deeper. But um, but anything else we want to talk about gear here before we get out of here on the next topic? You know, I think the the one gear that I think a lot is easy to miss is waders, um, waders and boots. Uh, and actually, I always like wading staff too. These are, you know, these are wild rivers. Still, it's not hard wading. Uh, they're pretty pretty soft bottom, like loose gravel. Some of them have like clay. It's really really nice wading, but you you do need some waders for a fly fishing trip up here, unless you're looking to just do the still water. But with the so many beautiful rivers and streams, man, you'd be missing out. So a good set of waders is, is, a, is I find a must. Yeah. A good set of waders. And, okay. Yeah. Great. And then everything else is pretty much show up and you guys have it all covered, right? Yep. We can cover all the tackle. So this has been, yeah, I mean, you guys have painted a really cool picture about what this is, why it's unique. I, I'm curious, uh, or as you know, you, you've been up there for a long time. Have you, you know, I think of us, you know, we're thinking about maybe move and find a different place. Have you ever thought about moving out of there or, you know, retiring or what? what's that? Are you going to be there till the very end? Well, I, I dread the word retiring. I love to fly. It has been my passion all my life. And I, I keep flying as long as they let me uh, keep my license. There you go. There you go. And to keep your license, is that pretty much a, uh, you just fly a certain number of hours per year to keep it? Is that how that works? Well, as a commercial pilot, the big thing, of course, you have to pass your medical uh, in our age, we have to do it that, uh, every six months. And as long as I can pass my medical, I will be flying. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. So, so a certain point, once you, yeah, w- at whatever age that is, there will be a time where, yeah, Daniel will have to take the lead or, you know, sort of thing. But until then you're going to, you're going to be flying. So if we come up there, you'll, you'll probably be in one of those planes. Oh yeah. Uh, he'll, he'll be right there with it. And I, I suspect after that he'll, he'll become a bit of a passenger princess too. And then it'll be the fishing. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah, right. No, it's, it's really fun. You know, we, you get, you don't always get to work with your dad every day, but, you know, flying slow planes together and fishing, you know, uh, life can be a lot worse. <laughs> That's got to be pretty cool. Yeah, Daniel, from your end. I mean, what if, as your dad's sitting there, you know, what is the one thing, you know, has he, you know, do you take away, every, you know, from him? Is there some, some cool things that, you know what I mean? I always think of my dad because he's, he's getting older. He's actually in his mid eighties now and he's having some issues. And I think about, you know, the impact, right? Some stuff. What's when you're up there, what, you know, you're flying, what are you thinking? Is your dad's stuff in your head you're thinking about? Yeah. I mean, I, I'm always thinking about, you know, I, I grew up, I think with my dad, we really grew up flying airplanes together. So it's kind of cool to, I often like Ian, I'll be thinking about, you know, the first time I flew with him or the last time I went to this spot with him and, you know, we're, we're, I think always connected through that airplane and, you know, this, this area. So, uh, when we're flying along, I'm always kind of 
adding to those memories and thinking of the ones, you know, that we have done as well too. And it's pretty, pretty beautiful to be, be up there and do that. Yeah. Awesome. And, and, and or from your end, I mean, how, how do you see when you look at Daniel, is he going to be taken over the helm eventually? Do you see him as a, a good a lead on this, on this thing you have, you've built? Yeah. On one hand, I'm happy to see that my, both of our boys are taking over and uh, they seem to have gotten the, the passion of the, the flying and the fishing. And at the end of the day, you look around in the world, it's a great place to live and make a living. And I've been very blessed and happy over the years that we have been able to to live up there. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's so cool. I mean, and you guys have to, I'm just guessing, but I mean, normally uh, we talk about climate change and stuff, but you, you're sitting out there in some pretty cold weather, right, during the winter. If you're sitting there in February, you know, whatever, middle of the winter, you're not outside doing a lot. Is that kind of how that looks? That's quite right. But you know what? It's not really any different than what you can experience in the Midwest or uh, in other places too. You just live with it. It it may last a little bit longer, the winters up north, but we have lots of clear days. uh, And I enjoy the wintertime too. It's part of the seasons. I I would not want to miss it. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. I think those winters are, are nice because you kind of relax with them a bit. And it just makes, you know, that summer, we almost have 24 hours of daylight at the peak of it. You get so much energy out of it. But come fall time, it's nice for, you know, earlier evenings, dark around, you know, 6 or 7 p.m. It's it just really relaxed to wind down to, you know, reflect and dream of the next year. Yeah, that's perfect. So, and and I want to. I've been thinking about this too. Just you know, or from your end, your your background from Switzerland. Maybe take us back there really quick. How did you? What was that like? I'm not sure when you came to Canada. Did you come straight? Like, how did that happen? Talk about your family and then how you how you came up here. Well, I grew up in a small town in in Switzerland uh, called St. Gallen. It's eastern part of Switzerland, and uh, I, I made an apprenticeship as a machinist. And uh, we had a factory-sponsored flying club there, so I had the opportunity to learn to fly when I was 17 years old. I I was lucky enough to to be able to fly a little bit in Europe, and then uh, obviously there was the opportunities are not really there to to make a living flying small airplanes. That's really what I wanted to do. So we came to Canada and uh, had an opportunity to start a business in uh, Fort Liard, but. Uh, I, I, we needed some money, and I, I found a, a, a position flying a, a Pilatus Porter, a small uh, uh, wheel plane in, in North Africa for the oil companies. So I worked for two years there and to save enough money to start the business uh, in Fort Liard, a uh, hundred miles to the northeast of where we live now, and that's the name Liard there. That's where we started the business. Gotcha. And and do you still have your family? Or is there still family in Switzerland? My parents are still alive. Uh, I'm oh, very wow. fortunate, yes. So I, I go and visit them uh, next week for a few days. Amazing. And, uh, yeah. And, uh, yeah. So you must be a little younger. How how old are you now? I'm 66 now. Oh, yeah. Still a young buck. Yeah, so you're 66. and uh, Wow, that's amazing. So your parents are still going strong out there. That's right, yes. Yeah. Very cool. And do you take, do you fly back or what's that look like? You're not flying your own plane back to Switzerland, I'm guessing. No, I uh, I mean, I would love to do one day, but uh, no, I take the airlines. It's it's cheaper to use them than my own airplanes. That's right. That's why I always wonder, but you know, you get up there to play. I know they fly at whatever the, the uh, you know, miles per hour because it conserves fuel. But still, isn't fuel crazy expensive, like the fuel that these planes are using? The fuel is expensive. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, it's probably not the most uh, 
how should I say, economical way, but that's the only way to get in there. Those airplanes are not built for speed. They are built to get you there. They, they have a high lift capacity. They may be relatively slow, but they carry the weight and they allow you to take off and land on a short lake. Yeah, that's it. Wow. Not built for transatlantic flights. <laughs> no, 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 no. This is this is good. But th- I think that's something that we, maybe we could talk more about in the next one about how, you know, you know, or is you're going to put that together before you, you know what I mean? I'd love to hear that trip. Um, I mean, but no, I think you guys, this has been great. First, um, so yeah, we talked about today about, you know, getting there. And at the start, I think, Dan, you talked about the flight, the fact that coming up from Vancouver. So maybe we can hear that. Like, what is... You know, this sounds like something you guys have a unique situation where you're flying. Do you own this situation where you're flying up and you don't have any issues? So talk about that. Describe how it works again and how people can get there. Yeah, I mean, the the, the big thing is, that, as you probably know, with the airline deregulation, many of the small communities in the States or even here in Canada lost the air service or the uh, reliable air service. Scheduled carriers. Scheduled carriers. Uh, in our case, uh, we used to be able to get people up on a, Boeing 737 into Fort Nelson. Unfortunately, airline, the airlines quit flying into those smaller communities. And, and we, we had problems like many small lodges and the far out places to get their guests up. So a few years ago, we decided to, to fix that problem once and for all. And we ended up buying a, a King Air 300, which is a, a great uh, turboprop machine, which allows us to fly nonstop from Vancouver with our guests uh, all the way up uh, to the north. Yeah, we don't really like, you know, airplanes. So, you know, having another one was was not such a difficult thing to twist our arms <laughs> yeah. at, right? You know, we're, <laughs> right. we uh, love having them around. We love airplanes. So it was it was pretty cool to add another one to the fleet. The, the big problem, of course, was uh, my wife, uh, Daniel's mother, she was all against getting another airplane. We don't need more airplanes, we were told. <laughs> the, the deal was good enough to buy the airplane she kind of relented and said, if you guys get another airplane, I get a cat. I want to have a cat. Nice. Oh, wow. That's a pretty good deal. Get, she gets the cat versus the plane. And, uh, we had to get an acoustic cat, so we, we got it. Oh, that's the, funny. Eventually, the cat ran away, but we still have the airplane, so we're in good shape. <laughs> I'm going to remember that one. That is really good. So, And this is the key. Is it called a King Airplane? Yeah, it's a King Air. It's it's kind of a it's a pretty awesome airplane. It's an iconic a 300? American. Yeah. Yeah, King Air 300. It's an American-built business aircraft. Uh, it was designed, uh, that one was built in, or designed in like the 1980s. It's built for speed. It's built for the versatility to land in remote and rugged places. Oh, wow. And this this thing will do like almost 400-ish miles an hour. Once Holy cow. Altitude. So it turns this fast distance. We're flying all the way across British Columbia from, from the coast, from Vancouver, right right across the longest distance to top northeastern corner of the province yeah. so wow. you know the speed is pretty nice to have for this this thing is flying at jet speeds and altitude what's the time what's the time of it from vancouver to landing there it's like two hours and 20 minutes two hours so, and 20 minutes which is a great yeah, flight it's faster than the airliner like that because it's a direct connection so it's it's pretty cool yeah yeah, people will not lose their baggage. It's all on our <laughs> Yeah, own that's right. I was going to say, that's one of the things you always, we were talking about all these trips, baggage is always the thing. You know, you can get oh your... Oh, my. You know what? We saw that so many times. Or, or damaged stuff. And, yeah. you know, we were, I think Dad instilled that in, in, in my brother and I. You know, if you do it yourself, you put your care and effort into it. It is hard to to get, you know, like an airline or an outside contractor sometimes to put that kind of effort in. And I think our clientele have always valued that. Right. 
Well, I'm curious because this is like one of those things. I just I just bought a new truck and it, it costs a lot of money, you know. And I'm like, I'm wondering that jet like this is what what is the rough price tag? Is this thing like a, a million dollars or more? What, what's well, I, I can tell you. I don't think from the float planes to to the King Air, uh, you don't spend a day on any of our aircraft worth anything under 1.5 million. Okay, I was gonna say yeah, that that was just rough. I was, I was figuring it was at least a million. It's got to be because this thing looks really cool. Yeah, we're, 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 uh, this is a premium trip, but the, the beauty of it is, you know, you've got a guy who, who built this business on, on these wings. Like he, uh, he loves his airplanes and we make sure we have the top of the line. That's right. That's right. Wow. So this is great. So, so I don't know. So do we have a a couple of stories on oars? You want to give us a a story? Uh, I don't know if it's a fishing story or just some amazing story about your years up there. Well, I mean, there's, there's many good stories. But one of the most uh, funniest story, which I still talk about, and it happened about 35 years ago, I flew some local guys from Fort Nelson in the wintertime. They wanted to go ice fishing on a remote mountain lake. And I had a De Havilland Beaver in those days on skis. And the boys kept phoning me and said, how much space do we have? How much uh, weight can we bring? And I gave him those answers. So the prearranged day uh, came. The boys showed up, four of them. And everybody had a duffel bag and the, the rest was all liquids, you know, the whiskeys and the beers and March <laughs> and still be pretty cold. Anyhow, I flew him to a, a remote lake to show the lake, landed on the ice there, dropped them off. And before I left, I said, well, do you guys really have enough gear? And then one, the leader of that group there said, oh, yeah, we do have enough. We have a list. So he, he goes through his pocket and uh, grabs the list and says, well, I'm supposed to bring an axe, so he takes, uh, goes through his duffel bag, he brings a hatchet out there, well, that's probably okay. So Mike, the next guy, he had to bring a saw. So he goes to Mike, Mike goes through his duffel bag, brings a survival saw out there. Well, again, it can be called, you have to cut lots of firewood. Anyhow, eventually they come down to, uh, to Tom and he had to bring a, the can opener. And Tom, he was already kind of half cut, he goes into his duffel bag, digs around in it, and pulls out an electric can opener, and it's the 80s. We don't have any uh, cordless can openers, and I still can see that cord dangling in front of me oh in the middle God. of the remote mountain lake uh, on, on the ice in March with the, with the boys uh, being left alone up there fishing for a few days, and uh, they had an electric can opener. Oh, my God. <laughs> Did they survive? Did they survive the trip? Oh, there's your wife to trip. I was thinking it was fine, but yeah. <laughs> it was funny just seeing wow. that car dangling, you know. Yeah. But just say when they flew out, there was less uh, less of a liquid load. <laughs> right. Right. That's one of those things. Yeah. The, the, the weight, that liquid weight is heavy, isn't it? Yeah. That's, that, that's a, we, we had a guy, uh, Paulie, he was a bit of a mentor, almost grandfather figure for me. He taught me to fly fish too. And whenever he went fishing, he had the heaviest tackle box. His tackle box was pretty much a six pack on its own. <laughs> and then his fishing vest was the exact same thing. So, you know, dad or the bush pilots, they would all like, you know, you, you all, Paulie's gear always had to go like at the very front of the airplane or bottom of the float in those, in those smaller airplanes we had back then. And yeah, it's, yeah, the, the, the liquid load is, is always, uh, is always something on a fishing trip, right? <laughs> yeah, that's good. As you can tell, we are having fun up there. Yeah, yeah no, I think it is. And I, I we've done a few of these trips, nothing kind of at the level with what you guys have going, but we're hoping to do some more of the lodge stuff, you know, trips and things. But 
one of the things just on our trips that we do is, you know, the food, the drinks, right? That's a huge part of it. Maybe just talk about that a little bit at your at the lodge when people are eating our drinks. Do you guys kind of cover everything, food, drinks, whatever beverages they need, all that stuff? So the, the alcohol is an extra there because uh, like with guys like Paulie, you never know what the, right. what the measurement is. But was. you have it. But you have it there. That you're serving it. But we, we have we have it. We got draft beer on tap. We got, you know, you can do cocktails right at the lodge in the lounge there. We got a full service, uh, you know, resort here. So it, it's pretty cool. Um, so you have some good, you have a couple good uh, IPAs as far as on the beer end? Yeah, we got we got some local IPAs. Uh, we could Perfect. bring it up here from Vancouver. Good. Uh, really nice uh, local brewery, uh, Granville Island. So, and uh, food wise, it's pretty fun. That's actually one of my secondary or third passions. Oh wow! I've got a couple. You're a foodie. I trained as a, a chef actually in uh, in Switzerland. So I followed the uh, followed the family heritage back. Uh, so I do a lot of the uh, the menus, especially for you oh, know our holy cow. So what would be a what would be a Swiss you know kind of a menu item if we were having the first night there? What would that look like? You know, we start off often with like exactly that. We have a little bit of a Swiss inspiration. So one of our go-tos is kind of like to start with like a, a schnitzel and spatzli. That's oh, kind of like one of the, the main courses. It's a breaded uh, pork cutlet. It is deep fried. Uh, it's it's awesome. And we serve it with a, a nice mushroom gravy on top. And the spatzli is a, it's like a, it's like a pasta. It's a, you know, we of course made in house and you fry it up just like to a light crisp, sprinkle with some butter Gosh. and some fresh herbs. Um, it's a simple dish, Sounds but it's, uh, it's, it's always a crowd pleaser. Um, sometimes, you know, if people really like it, you know, later on in the week, you can say, well, do you want to try that as a sandwich? Like the schnitzel sure. sandwiches is one of my favorites out in the bush too. It's, uh, it's nice and rich and delicious. Yeah. Gosh, schnitzel. And then what, and then breakfast are typical breakfast. You'll sit in there and have kind of your, uh, whatever, uh, eggs, ba- yeah, all that. Yeah. We have, we have, you know, a full continental breakfast there, but what's also nice, you know, we have a, that this whole resort that does so much more than just the fishing. So we, we can really like, if someone on a fishing trip has a wish, we can cater to that pretty good. Like we have a lot of resources we can draw upon, you know, the, the chefs can, you know, make omelets and, and, uh, poached eggs like we we really can uh you know cook up you know fantasies for people there i love to do a tasting menu in the evening as well too if people like that perfect oh man this all sounds good all right so uh, daniel do you have uh, a story you want to share before we head out of here well yeah i you know so many of them i don't know how many days we got here to speak stories well let's start with one and then we'll follow up with you the other feature yeah i was actually this is just a recent memory comes right to my head it was a pretty funny one, and we we just talked about Polly, so it just reminded me of it. I was uh I was out on a we'll call it an undisclosed uh, fly fishing film shoot, and um, uh, you've probably been on a couple of those. And oh yeah, you, you need to stage a shot. You need to walk from the you know this time we were at the Frog River cabin, one of my favorite spots. You've probably heard it mentioned a couple times. It's it's, it's high on my list of the outposts for fly fishing. That's the one. Uh, so okay. we're there and. We have to open the cabin door, you know, a certain way, look at the map in another way, uh, you know, pose and ponder and discuss. Oh, right, anyway, right, right. We missed the the morning fishing with shoots and reshoots. Sure. We missed the afternoon bite. And now, now we're finally getting beautiful limelight. Like, this is when we want to get the shot. This is when we want to get the fish. So 
absolutely no pressure, right? Um, right, right. And well, so we go up to, you know, the spot, the spot that I, I feel I know is going to produce, but man, I, I'm just thinking what's, we, we got 15 minutes here to land oh, man. and de-fish for Pressure's the on. make it happen. How, what can I do? And I, I think back to Polly and me and Polly spent quite a bit of time at Frog River. Uh, I have a lot of memories fishing with him. And, you know, of course I go to one of the spots he showed me. He taught me to fly fish actually at Frog River. So I, I felt I was, I was ready for it, but I still, there's a little bit of pressure. I was like, what can I do here? And well, Polly, I mentioned he, he liked his beer a little bit. So, so I figured, you know, in the honor of Polly, who's unfortunately now no longer with us, I figured we're going to crack a beer and, Polly taught me two things about fishing. He wasn't about casting. He wasn't about technique or fancy gear or anything. For him, it was presentation and mother nature. You don't mess with mother nature and get your head out, out of all the complex stuff. Just get that fly on the water. Nice, easy presentation. That's going to catch you fish. All the other fancy frills, leave it behind. So you know, I took that first word of advice, but I was like, well, that, that tells me what cast I should do and what fly I should need. Like just something simple. Right. But what do I do for mother nature? And I was like, well, the best, the best thing I think Polly would feel mother nature, you know, she's a lovely woman. You need to, you need to treat her. So, so I figured the best thing I could give mother nature at this, so if I don't really have much in my fishing, fishing vest, but I had a little celebratory beer. So the first sip is the best sip. So I poured a little bit in the river you know, in, in tribute and hope that that was, uh, that was enough to catch my fish. And my first cast, I snagged a little, uh, a, a log and I was like, oh, this, uh, I was like, that, that's not great. But it, I reeled it in. It was a little stick in the end. And I was like, well, if you know, if that was a grayling that, you know, something, maybe Paulie's looking out for me. He sent me something. Second cast, I catch a medium size grayling. I was like, oh, this, this is all right. This is all right. Okay. Something's happening. Third cast, Bam, three pound plus uh, Arctic grayling on the fly. You know, film crew goes nuts. And, you know, I, I I tried to kind of act as if, you know, I knew exactly that's how it's sure. going to go down. They got it. I, yeah, we, we had 15 minutes to make that shot happen. And, uh, oh. you know. And three pounds. That is like a, what, three, 18 a inch? Three plus pounder. It was really, really nice. And yeah, it was super fun. Beautiful lighting. I, I'm looking forward to that footage coming out, but. I can't say much more about it. It's uh, it's tight-lipped. I think it's going to be a okay. spring or summer release. It's, it's it's on the burner for a bit. Oh, perfect. Well, well, we'll circle back around in the summer when it's out, and we'll definitely put a link out so people can check that out. All right, Daniel. So give us the rundown. Before we get out of here, I want to hear about what this looks like. If somebody wants to put together a package, just tell everybody whatever they need to know about if they want to get up to your neck of the woods. Yeah, so start off, send me an email. You can uh, email me at daniel at nradventures.com. Uh, let me know what fish species you're, you're wanting to hit, what kind of fishing you're doing, still water if you want to hit the rivers, and then I'll, uh, I'll look into some dates to make it happen for you. It's an all-inclusive package right out of Vancouver, BC. We uh, fly you up, and I think that King Air my father mentioned. So this is a, a no-hassle holiday, pretty, pretty easy to connect with. And then you get a cabin right on the lake at the Lodge's uh, Fishing Resort daily you know all meals covered you're it's an all-in trip and then of course you have these flyouts that you know brandon and myself and everyone was talking about that's that's the joy of it so you can yeah it's a week-long package send me an email if you're if you're interested 
Okay. And if they, once they do that, the next steps are you get them situated with just the details of how they get involved. And are there different packages, different options, or do you typically say, hey, you come for a week or what do you recommend? Yeah. You know, that's a, that's awesome. That's a great question. So usually what I like to do is we base it off of, it's a very custom experience. You tell me the species you're going for. I'll look at the availability. Sometimes I might have to say, you know what? The availability, it's sold out. You're looking at, you know, the coming year because we we take a maximum of nine guests a week. It's pretty exclusive. It's booked out pretty quick. Then uh, then from there, uh, yeah, we, we have two packages. Uh, they're both a week long. The classic package, which is with four days of guided flying fishing with two self-guided up there at the lodge. While the uh, the premiere is kind of like the ultimate, it has six flyouts every single day flying out. It's really up to you can mix and match. You can add a flyout onto the classic to kind of make it an in between trip. So there there's so many customization options. It's you know probably best to shoot over an email and let me know what works for for you. Okay, so yeah, email's best to get started, and then you can if you need to grab a call and check in with everybody and fill them in on the details. Yeah, awesome. So yeah, guys, I think this is, uh, I think we're good. I've uh, learned a lot actually. And uh, I think people are probably pretty fired up to uh, learn more. So we're going to send them out, I guess, uh, nradventures.com if they have questions or want to take it further. Yeah. nradventures.com slash wet fly swing or uh, just directly there. Or, you know, you can always drop me an email. I'm daniel at nradventures.com. Hey, I love to talk fishing. You know, any questions? tips about the area and just getting out there uh always happy and is there and we haven't talked about this dan this is kind of off the cuff but is there anything special we can you know if people go to that page let's say we have the the nradventures.com slash wet fly swing um is that kind of going to be kind of a welcoming them to you guys or any thoughts like this is kind of on the cuff but yeah no i i got i got i'm gonna have a little little promo there for for people for your listeners um and so it's probably not gonna. It's gonna be up for a couple couple months here, and um, yeah, it's it's you'll you'll have my direct contact address there. We'll put a okay. little little show recording link in as well as they as they come up, and okay. um, you know I'll put just recent photos of the of the last season here, so people know what to expect and the things we talked about. I'll have a couple links to delve a little bit deeper into the website. Amazing. All right, Daniel. Uh, Orz, well, we'll be in touch. I'm going to work on your uh, the uh, pronunciation of your name and your last <laughs> name, so I haven't even thrown it out there. Maybe you guys give it to us. So let's hear your the pronunciation of your last name because I can't do it. Yeah, so that's a tricky one, but it's uh, Schildknecht. And the way I like to say it, it's Shieldbearer in German. And uh, from a fly fishing standpoint, just think of us as your squires. Here, you know, the shield being your rod will uh, kid everyone out like fishing knights. You're a squire, so you're, I always think of it like the, uh, you know, uh, Luke Sky Yoda and Luke Skywalker, right? Like, yeah. you know, that sort of, or whatever the thing is. Like Yoda is your teacher. You're kind of like our Yoda, right, for this this trip. Yeah, we, you know, I think I think that's the go-to for that. But I've been learning all my life from him, and uh, when you spend 40 years in an area like this, you you get to know the waters, and you know, 70 different remote flying waters. That's not because there's 70 spots to hit. There's thousands of them uh, up in that area, lakes and rivers combined, 70 prime time fishing areas. Good stuff. All right, or or is any any last words before we get out of here? No, I really appreciate the time and your interest, and I just would love to uh, host you and your friends up in Northern BC. 
Awesome, guys. All right. Appreciate it. We'll talk to you all soon. Okay. Very good. Thank, Thank you, you, Dave. Dave. Take care. That is a wrap. You can grab all of the show notes at wetflyswing.com. And please follow us on Instagram and share this episode out with someone you love. Please send me an email, dave at wetflyswing.com, if you have any feedback or want us to put together an episode on this podcast for you. Check in anytime. I hope you enjoyed this podcast and would love to meet up with you on the water. We have new fly fishing schools going all year long and all around the country. So if you want to connect, let's do it right now. All right, time to get out of here. I hope you have a great evening. I hope you have a great morning or great afternoon wherever in the world you are. And I appreciate you for stopping by and checking out the show today. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com.